Teresa. Hey, Teresa, this is Kevin. How are you? Good, how are you? Good, good. How do I sound there? You sound good. Okay. You know, this is recorded, uh, so it's not live, so no pressure. Uh-huh. We can make all the mistakes we want. Okay, yeah, I'm fine <laughs> with that then. Hey, you know, my motto is, if you sound good, I sound good as a producer. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> and I sound okay then? Oh, yeah, you sound good. Great, okay. Is it Teresa Funk? Is that right? Yes, that's right, yeah. Okay. There's an E, but you don't pronounce it. Funky. So on episode 39 of the podcast, we talk with author Teresa Funk, who writes novels based on true stories from World War II. Is that right, Teresa? That is right. Hey, good, good. I got that. I usually butcher these things. <laughs> <laughs> so on Veteran Voices, the oral history podcast, we like to talk with those who tell and share veteran stories in creative and interesting ways, you know, such as historians, authors, filmmakers, poets, photographers. You know, we actually had a fellow on who was a colorist of, uh, of old photographs. Amazing stuff. The kid was 16 years old. Wow. Oh, he was gaining international uh, recognition for his colorist work. Mm-hmm. And there's a new book out about World War II colorization photography, and uh, he's featured in it. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, he's one of our, one of our, in fact, I think it's still probably our most listened to podcast that we've, we've had with Veteran Voices. So interesting mm-hmm. stuff. It was a fascinating topic, if you ask me. Yeah, absolutely. I know they're doing a lot of restoration right now. There's actually a place in my hometown of Boise, Idaho, that's doing restoration. Very fascinating. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm Kevin Farkas, executive producer of the Social Voice Project, and we produce this podcast along with several others dealing with public history and oral history and local history in particular, which is near and dear to my heart. So, Teresa, the stories that you've gone after, the World War II stories, the veteran stories, were they local? Were they from veterans uh, around you in your local community? Well, they were at the time. Um, I was born and raised in Boise, Idaho. And when I was in college, I had a job working for PBS, and uh, my job was to go out and interview people to decide whether or not we wanted to have them on the series. The series was a history of Idaho. Mm. And I was sent out to do a preliminary interview of this man named Clint Hackenstead, who was a Wake Island survivor. He had been a civilian contract worker on Wake Island at the beginning of the war. And he tells this incredibly amazing story. And I'm sitting there looking at him thinking, I'm a history major. I grew up in this town. Most of the men in the Wake Island Survivors Group were local to Boise because that's where Morris and Knutson had its headquarters. And they were the ones that were in charge of building the base. And so here were all these men around me, this amazing story that I'd never heard. And I wondered how that was possible. And so I did recommend him for the series. He did wind up being in the series. And then I just got really fascinated with that story of the Wake Island survivors and also what happened to their wives. Because when I met his wife, I realized that no one in 50 years had ever asked the women what they had gone through in that experience. And they had a unique story because since the men were civilian construction workers and they were not military, the Red Cross could not track them. So for the whole war, most of the women did not know if their husbands or fiancés were alive. Wow. And the government did not provide support because they were not military wives. So these women were all of a sudden completely on their own, and that was a story that had never been told. So when it came time to write Remember Wake, I interviewed 13 of the men and women who'd gone through that experience, and I took the best parts of their stories, and I wove them into the two main characters of the book. 
so that people would get like a full understanding of what happened. You are a novelist in particular, right? That is your, that's, that's your craft. Right. I have to stop and go back a little bit to something that you said that really interests me. And that is, you said that you didn't, you wondered why you didn't know the stories. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, in retrospect, and it's still true today, maybe even more so, we didn't really get a lot of history in, in junior high and high school. And by the time they got to World War II and certainly Vietnam, it was towards the end of the school year and they were rushing through them. You know, there were not opportunities then for vets to come into the classroom. I don't remember ever hearing a veteran speak when I was growing up. And here were these people living amongst us, sometimes literally next door, and we had no exposure as children to these stories unless you had a grandfather or an uncle or someone who fought in the war, which I did not. So I had grown up never hearing war stories. My dad had been in the Vietnam era, but he was stationed stateside the entire time. And so for me, it became just this, this fascination of getting to hear somebody tell their war stories. And then this angle was particularly interesting because since the men were construction workers and they fought right alongside the Marines on Wake Island, but they were not military, they were not actually even treated as veterans until the 1980s. Wow. So that's when they were finally given the designation and be able to get some benefits. And up until that point, they were supporting each other when they returned from the war, which I thought was also really fascinating. So, and the Wake Island survivors, you know, they were the first big heroes of World War II because they managed to hold off the Japanese for 16 days on this little tiny island out in the middle of the ocean. And by the time the Japanese did overrun the island and then they took them to prison camps in Japan and China, these men then wound up spending almost the entire war in some of the most horrific conditions you can imagine. And so for me, it's like it was fundamental that we get this story out there, that people have an opportunity to learn about it. And I did consider nonfiction, but there were nonfiction books out there at the time about these kinds of stories, but there was nothing in fiction. And I wanted to reach the type of readers that wouldn't normally read about World War II or wouldn't, certainly would not normally read about prison camps and reach a whole new audience of people with this story, which is exactly what happened. Would you classify your work as creative nonfiction? No, it's definitely historical fiction. Um, all of my books are. My second book is called Dancing in Combat Boots, and it is a short story collection of women's stories from World War II. And, and I can tell you a little bit more about that one because it has an interesting background. Yes, please. And then I have a children's series now for middle grade readers, and each of those books is based on a real person that I interviewed. But, you know, with Remember Wake, I would say this, the book is probably 90% true because I had so much material and the men and the women both remembered so many things that I was able to put all of their memories into the book and even some lines of dialogue came straight out of the interviews. And then with the children's books, they're more like 50% true, 50% made up because with, when you're writing for children, you have to keep things very exciting and engaging and um, so I add in storylines that maybe my source didn't actually do, like participate in a scrap metal contest. But it's something that they could have done mm. that would have been true to that time period. So the children's books are probably only about 50% true. And there's a section in the back of the book that tells the kids what parts are true and what parts are made up so that they understand that, the, the distinction between those two things. Oh, that's a great service you're doing there. That's... Now, that's pretty remarkable because, you know, one of the most uh, salient criticisms of historical fiction or creative nonfiction is the license that authors take with the truth. And, you know, those who, who think that 
you know, the truth ought to be revealed as such, you know, they, they have issues with those uh, licenses that authors take. And they wonder how the public will receive, you know, these fictitious uh, stories. But that's really fascinating that you do that. You just lay it out there for your reader. Yes, and I, I agree. And I, I do write creative nonfiction, um, more personal essay and that sort of thing. And I feel very strongly that creative nonfiction still needs to be true and, and as accurate as possible. And that creative nonfiction just means that you're using the stylistic devices of an author. So some description that would be more like what you'd read in a novel or dialogue. But I don't believe that you should be changing the facts, even in creative nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And if you are going to do that, I think you need to be really upfront with your reader in an author's note at the beginning of the book saying, look, I'm going to make these changes and this is why, so that they don't find out later that they have been misled by you. Right. And I just think that's an obligation that we have if we write creative nonfiction. Now, my my books being historical fiction, being novels, I'm not required to do that. But even in Dancing in Combat Boots, I have an author's note at the beginning of the book that explains, I interviewed these 10 women, and then I fictionalized their stories, and here's how, but there's an epilogue in the back of the book so that you can learn what happened to the real women in real life. And so for me, that's kind of how the historian in me comes to terms with writing historical fiction and still wanting it to be as accurate as I can make it. Who's reading your stories? You know, that's a really good question, because when I wrote Remember Wake, and I had an agent at the time, and the editors would say, you know, it's all about marketing, it's all about sales, and they would say, who is this book for, men or women? And I'd say, well, I think it's for both, because, I mean, it tells this really strong story, it tells both sides of the story, and they'd say, men or women? And I'd say, well, really, I mean, I really think both will like it, and they'd say, men or women? (laughs) And I said, fine, women, because women buy 70% of books, and they buy books for the men in their lives. But when it came time for the book to be published and I was getting response from people, from readers, I was hearing from both men and women equally, Mm. um, which is exactly what I thought would happen with that book. The other thing that was interesting about it is I assumed that people from the World War II generation would be my market for that book, and it turned out they weren't. It's like many of them told me, honey, I lived it. I don't need to read about it. And it was their children who were buying the book like crazy because they had asked their parents, their fathers and sometimes their mothers to tell them about their wartime experience and their parents had told them no. So they were reading my book to find out what their parents had gone through. So uh, that became very interesting. Now with Dancing in Combat Boots being women's stories from World War II, it's primarily women who read that book. I'm so excited when I find a man who's read that book, which I think is a shame. I think it's a shame that women's history is considered sort of secondary and that only women read women's history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, that's a, a little bit of a frustration for me. Um, and then, of course, the children's books are for kids mostly ages 8 to 13 are the ones who read it, and that's, that's really gratifying to me. You know, in our work, we often have to admit that our audience is rather niche. Yeah, everyone has heard the World War II stories. Everyone goes to see the movies, you know, yada, yada. It is a very popular genre, right? No matter what mm-hmm. art form. But really, when you get down to things like oral histories or detailed accounts of things, or even, a, you know, a very wonderfully written novel about, you know, wartime experiences, is it a general public sort of thing or is it a niche kind of um, a domain? You know, I thought that it might be a niche. I thought it would be um, people who liked World War II history. And 
I found that to not be true. I've had so many book clubs do both Remember Wake and Dancing in Combat Boots, and many people have told me I'd never read anything about the war before, which to me is astonishing because I think sometimes I feel like all I read about is the war. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, right. I've been doing this for 25 years. and so. But no, I, I hear that all the time from people who will tell me about that they've read my books and say, I never read anything about World War II. I'm so much more interested in this now. And of course, with children... I wrote these books because I started being invited into classrooms to speak about writing and World War II, and I'd be in fifth grade classrooms, and there were kids, none of the kids had heard of Adolf Hitler. Wow. They they hadn't heard of Pearl Harbor. Wow. And I'm talking to, you know, fifth grade students who were fascinated to learn about the war, and it was a fifth grade student who said to me, why don't you write something for us? This is so interesting. We want to learn about this war. And so that's why that series got started, is so that children would have an opportunity to learn about World War II, because they do not hear about it in school until possibly junior high, high school, you know, if they're still going to those classes. So um, that was a mission for me, was to get the story out there. See, you're a perfect guest for our podcast. Thank you. (laughs) Telling these stories in creative and interesting ways, that's exactly what we want to pull out. You know, veteran stories, they certainly get, they, they certainly get heard. They get shown through film, photographs, and mm-hmm. so forth. Mm-hmm. But, you know, those of us on the other side of the camera, often we don't get recognized for what we do. And there's a lot of complicated things that go on on the oral history production side. Uh, mm-hmm. Or in your case, you know, the the uh, you know the writer side of pulling together these stories. And I'm so glad that you're on today to, you know, to share some of these things. I have to ask you, in all of the stories that you've put together, your books... Have there been any moments or any particular stories that have just stunned you or stopped you in your tracks or made you wince or have, an, have a reaction that was really unexpected? Oh, absolutely. You know, when the Wake Island survivors were telling me about the conditions in the prison camps in Japan, which, of course, were far worse than even the German POW camps, 40% of the people in the Japanese camps died. It was outrageously bad conditions. And so hearing some of them talk about that was difficult. And then to write those scenes in a, in a dramatic way and have to make them come alive and have to have characters who die and who are tortured and who are starving. Um, people ask me all the time, how could you write those scenes? I mean, were you just sobbing while you were writing it? And so I think a lot of those details really stuck, have stuck with me still, um, the, the lessons they learned from being in the camp. And then, too, with the women, uh, when I approached Dancing in Combat Boots, which I'll tell you a little bit about that book, because it started out as an oral history collection. When I was researching Remember Wake, I had a hard time finding out what it was like to be a woman during the war, what it felt like to be a woman. There was not a lot of literature out there about that at the time. and This was in the early 90s. So I decided that I was going to write an oral history book interviewing women from different socioeconomic groups, different ethnic groups across the country about their World War II experiences. And I, I did that. I found these amazing women. Um, one was a wasp who flew planes for the military. One was an African-American whack in the Army, so she was segre- segregated by race and gender. But then there was also a Mexican-American woman running her brother's grocery store when he joined up for the Navy. And then there, were, um, there was an artist who sketched wounded soldiers in their hospital beds. And so it wound up being this really fascinating collection, and it was an oral history collection. 
And then I had an agent, and we were out there shopping it around to editors, and the editors just kept saying, oral history collections don't sell. They don't sell. So my agent said, rewrite this book. And I said, well, how do you expect me to do that? And he said, I don't know, just do it. So I spent two years rewriting them as short stories, fictionalizing the stories and trying to make them a little bit more exciting so that they were a little bit more towards the fiction side of things. And that's how that book wound up becoming a short story collection. But what surprised me about talking to the women is that I would talk to those women and I would expect, for example, that the woman who had been an African-American whack would have a lot of resentment about the way she was segregated and the way she was treated in the Army. And that was there. But what came across more strongly for her was, hey, the Army was a way out. I was stuck in this tiny little segregated southern town with this very domineering mother and grandmother, and I just wanted to be free. And through the Army, I was freer than I'd ever been, a segregated Army. So that was fascinating to me. So I think for me, when you say what stood out for me, it was how sometimes what I was expecting is not at all what I heard. I have to ask you this. If you had been you know, very obstinate and said, I'm going to put these oral histories out there myself, do you think they would have been as re- well-received as your creative, stylized versions of the stories? Well, the historian in me who loves oral history collections and owns many of them would like to think so. <laughs> you would like but... to. <laughs> sure. We... Yeah. But in reality... I think probably, it. for example, the fact that um, so many book clubs have picked up Dancing in Combat Boots, I don't think that would have happened necessarily if it had been an oral history collection because people are just unfamiliar with the style of reading those types of books. Whereas with short stories, like I said, each one's a little bit more dramatic. Some are told in first person, some third person. So you feel very close to the characters. And then I was actually able to turn that book into a one-woman show. Wow. And so when I produce the show, then I get audiences of people who are very different than the kinds of people who would read the book. And I don't know that I could have pulled that off if it had been an oral history collection in the end. Although, like I said, I still have that original manuscript and a part of me still wishes (laughs) that that had been something that would have sold and been popular and been read. But I think people had sort of moved on from that tradition in the written form. You know, there is a reality that this comes with storytelling. And that is, you know, good storytelling, you know, has all those elements that um, we we come to expect from stories. And the way people tell their own personal stories, I like to call them, you know, the, the catalog of events that we often get from people that we interview. And it's, you know, I was here, I went there, da-da-da-da-da, this date and that date. Well, that does not a good story make, you know, often, right? right? <laughs> so, so those of us who, on the other side of the camera, the recorder, the, the pen, we have to say, hey, you know, how do we get this story into a shape that is received well by an audience? Because, you know, the reality is a story that doesn't get listened to is essentially a story that's never heard. So do we have an obligation to this project to make these stories um, well-received by an audience? Do we not? You know, I think classically in in a historical sense, I think historians didn't worry about that stuff. They were after information. Mm -hmm. But those of us who are content creators, we are authors and artists and poets and photographers. You know, we create stuff for an audience. It's almost an obligation, you know, to get these stories heard. And that's not always an, an easy task. No, that's a very good point, and I'm glad you brought that up. Um, When I was working on Dancing in Combat Boots, I actually got the name of a woman who, you know, advertising was one of those industries that became open to women during the war in ways that it never had been before. And she had moved up in, in advertising and had this very, very interesting career. In fact, she'd even spearheaded kind of a 
pretty popular campaign in the 1950s. And I was so excited to interview her and to include her. This was back when it was an oral history collection. And it was one of those things where you try to do the interview and you're, you know, you're, you ask a question. So you were in New York at the time of the war. And the answer is yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> what was that like? It was interesting. And there was nothing there. I mean, there was nothing I could do to get her to say more than one word answers or really general statements. And I was like, this isn't going to work. She's had this fascinating life. I would love to tell this story. But in a collection of stories in a book, I have to make the decision as the author, she's not going to work because I can't do enough with the material she's providing me. Right. And that's hard. It's hard to know that there's really fascinating stories out there that will not make it into the final product, whether that's a film or a book because of that reason. What we've done here on our end in Pittsburgh is we've operated under the, the principle that, look, if nothing else, you know, this story will be valuable to the family, sometimes not even to the veteran, really. Oh, I don't care. That's my story. I, you know, I lived it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that that story as told, you know, has, you know, by the, the veteran has relevance uh, and importance to the family if, if, and close friends and so forth. And we see that certainly in the statistics on our media, how many people download our, our videos and uh, things mm -hmm. like that. Right? We see it. not very much for the standard run-of-the-mill kind of uh, uh, right. interview, right? But boy, I'll tell you, you create a short story. Like I, I do a series of audio shorts uh, taken from our oral history collective. Wow, people gravitate towards that because, you know, it's entertaining, uh, it's captivating. Mm -hmm. But so that the original story, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that that original story, boy, it really does have a place and we've always said, uh, well, we're going to still make that available. So we, we make these long-form, hour-plus interviews, you know, available on the Internet. So if a family wants to see it, they see it, right? But, you know, we'll take we'll do something derivative with it to appeal to a little bit wider audience, I think, um, out of that. Does that yeah. make sense, you know? Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, as a historian, I think it's fundamental that none of that material ever gets thrown away. Yeah, and that. Yeah. And that those people do have those stories for their families because family history is critical and passing that on and making our children aware of it is really, really important. And so I tell people all the time, you know, even if you can just get your, your relative to tell you 10 little things, it's better than nothing. You know, let's get it down. Let's record it. Let's save it. Um, on my website, I have a World War II honoree page where people will they'll donate my books into classrooms in honor of someone from their family. And sometimes all we have is 150 words. But it's up there and it's recorded and there are pictures there and the kids that go to my website can see these were real people. You know, they weren't famous. They weren't heroes in the sense of being this big, well-known general or admiral. But these were the guys that live in your neighborhood. And that's really, really important to me. And like I said, even if all we can get is 150 words, it's going up there. If I could ask you, um, if we could sort of step into the weeds just a little bit here, when you say to people, hey, you know, get the stories while you can, do you offer any sort of particular advice on a good way to do that? Uh, a digital recorder, a camcorder? Do you offer that kind of advice? I do, if people ask me, yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's children, and we have some resources that that can kind of help kids prompt questions with a grandparent. Of course, kids today, their grandparents are often more times from the Vietnam era. But back when I was doing my own interviewing, you know, I had a tape recorder and I taped everyone. And, you know, at the time, people were just starting to use video recorders to do that as well. And so I was a part of a couple of programs where we were using video recorders. And so I did have some tips for people about how to get, you know, your source to stop paying attention to the technology and top, kind of to forget that it's there. Right, right. Because that's 
what tends to worry them. If you're constantly fiddling with the technology, it distracts them and it reminds them that they're being recorded and they get they get nervous and they stop talking. And so for me, I would turn my tape recorder on and I would make eye contact and I would take notes and that's it. And I was just hoping to God that recorder was running. Because <laughs> I knew if I looked at it too often, I, I knew from experience that they would start to get hesitant and they would pause and they would oh my god yeah you're recording and it would just remind them but if i could ignore the technology then they did too that is a thing you know having that camera in your face or that recorder that microphone there that is a real thing that is just a is an obstruction i'll tell you what in, in my experience what i think is another obstruction is that way that that we sort of overly formalize you know that experience when we work with children, I say, look, you're having a conversation with another person or you know, two human beings talking mm-hmm. and let that guide you. We may have a list of questions on our, you know, on our lap and, you know, oh, if we, if we have to, if that's our guiding star, you know, that list of questions, you know, we're really in trouble. But if we first and foremost realize that this is a conversation with another human being and we're just going to proceed as such. And sometimes that will overcome the technology that's, uh, you know, the barrier in the room. Yeah. And I mean, I've worked with some teenage groups, high school groups that were working on film projects and that sort of thing. And, you know, I have a list of tips, and and one of the things we talk about a lot before they go into these interviews is have your list of questions ready, but do not become, you know, overly focused on that list. If they go off on a tangent and it has nothing to do with what you're talking about, you have to bring them back. But if they go off on a tangent that's a really great story, let them go. And if you don't get to all your questions, that's fine. And if there's a question they don't have the answer to, don't make them answer it. And I, we just kind of walk through how not to be, because what happens with young people especially is they feel like this is an assignment, I've got to do this correctly, which means if my team and I agreed on 20 questions, I have to ask these 20 questions in this order. And you know, what I was seeing is that they would be cutting people off when they were telling this great story. And you're like, no, no, we don't want to do that. <laughs> so, right. It takes some work for for kids, especially for teenagers, to understand, you know, even though this is an assignment and even though you agreed to these questions, they don't rule the interview. You have to go with the flow. Right. So I'm going to play uh, Stud Sterkle here and ask you if you worry that the art of conversation is being lost, that, that young children aren't just not even having an access to an older person to talk to, but once they do, they really don't know how to have those conversations. Do you worry about that? I do worry about that. And I mean, I don't mean to sound out of touch or, or, or old fashioned, but I worry about it a lot because what I see is that there's been some very big changes in, in the world. One is that a lot of kids don't live near their extended family anymore. And so they are not growing up hearing their aunts and uncles talk the way I did with the grandparents. That's one logistical issue. And the other thing is, we're a much more protective group of parents these days. We won't take kids to see an elderly relative if we feel like it might be bothersome to the children, like it might upset them to see somebody who's old and maybe doesn't always make sense or has some sort of ailment. And and we, we have this interesting way of, like, quote, protecting kids from people who are older and maybe sick or maybe not doing well. And we don't take them to those places or or they're not around those people anymore. And that's not even to say anything about if your grandparents are only in their 70s and they're still perfectly healthy, we don't encourage those conversations with kids because we're trying to protect them. Oh, we don't want them to have nightmares Mm -hmm. or they're too young to hear about the war 
or, uh, you know, any of the things that we do now, I think we've become very protective of children in a way that I'm not sure is serving kids. Because when I go into the schools and I talk about the war, I can talk about things in a pretty close to explicit way, and they get it, and they're not scared, and they're interested, and they want to know more. But I have to be careful of when I, I have to walk that line carefully, too. So it's a very big concern for me that kids are not having opportunities to be around older people and not learning how to ask questions and listen to a story. Well, you certainly piqued my interest in something you just said. Are there lines that you won't cross? Are there topics that you won't address or you just stay away from? Not so much on my end. I mean, I ask the questions. If they don't want to answer me, then I'm not going to force them to, of course. I mean, obviously, I talk to some people who'd been through some really, really horrific experiences, extremely personal experiences. And, you know, the people I was interviewing would still cry about things and these things that happened 50 years ago. And that didn't bother me, and I didn't shy away from any particular question. But I am extremely respectful of people's boundaries. And I remember I was talking to one woman, and she said, we made a point not to have children during the war. And I said, well, can you tell me how you did that? And then she told me. And she said, oh, but don't put that in your book. Huh. And I said, but I, this would be great because I think people don't realize that there were those methods back then. And she goes, no, 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 I don't want that in the book. And I said, well, can I put in the book, we made a point not to have children during the war. And she said, yes, you can say that. And so that's exactly how I worded it in the book. Mm. So I'm, I'm very respectful of people's boundaries. I feel that's my obligation. But I will sometimes say, how about this, how about that, until they reach a place where they're comfortable and I have had to let some things go that I would have loved to have had included, but I'm not going to betray someone's trust. And that's just a personal view of my work. But, and when the book came out, everybody was very, very happy with it, and they were all very appreciative. And they trusted me when I was writing it, and I felt like I had to earn that trust. Sure. There are always ethical considerations in this work on both sides of the equation here. We had a gentleman uh, admit to, um, although it was petty, it was a it was a crime, and I struggled with, do I do I share that? Do I what do I do with this? I mean, it was I thought it was just personally very very disgusting. Uh, mm. well, I think I did publish it um, because you know it's uh, it, it, it's not my story, right? For one. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, if he felt comfortable enough to say it and, uh, you know, we make no bones about, uh, you know, this is public. This is what we do is going to be shared with the public. So, yeah, I did. But I agonized over that for a bit, you know. But, yeah, these ethical concerns are pretty weighty sometimes. They are pretty weighty. And I have to say that I'm, I am a little lucky because being a fiction writer, I can choose to leave that out. If I had been in your shoes, I would have gone through the same ethical dilemma of you trying to decide, should I include this or not? Since I'm writing fiction, I can say, I'm not comfortable with this. I'm just not going to put it in. So I think I have a little bit more freedom in that sense. But yeah, I totally, I hear what you're saying, because I've worked on oral history projects for like museums. And that was also a case of, should we put this in or not? Right. So yeah. yeah. Hey, so what are you working on now? I'm working on the fifth book in the children's series, which is the Pearl Harbor story. It's based on a a woman who lives here in my town who was a Navy officer's daughter, and she stood on the front steps of Navy housing and watched the bombs falling all around her. And then after that, there's two more books for sure in this series, and then probably the series will close out because my sources are in their late 80s now. So the next book will be set in Windsor, Colorado, in a farming community with German POWs working on the farm. And then the last book will be an African-American boy in the South, or possibly girl. I haven't found the 
the source for that yet. So my children's series is a multicultural series, which is really fun. One book is a Caucasian girl in the Illinois Valley working for working at a war factory, and then a boy in a Japanese internment camp, and then a Mexican-American boy in San Antonio, and a Jewish girl in the Bronx. So part of the research I do for every book is not just about World War II, it's about the cultures that I'm writing about. And that's been really fascinating, too. So where can someone find your projects? Now, you have a website. Yes, it's TeresaFunk.com, T-E-R-E-S-A-F-U-N-K-E.com. And there's tons of information on there about the books and the series and the work I do in schools and, you know, the show and all of those things. Everything that you could possibly want is on that website, including tips for writers and lots of resources for writers as well. And you are on our Facebook group, the Veterans Oral History Association. That's a big title for <laughs> a little chat room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We actually met there on that, that Facebook page. Yes. And uh, we encourage others who have an interest in veterans oral history to look us up, get on that page. Definitely go to TeresaFunk.com and look up your work there. I'm looking at your site now, and it is loaded with stuff. Jeez, loaded with stuff. Yeah, it's really fun. And my books are on Amazon and all of those places as well. Um, but do visit the website because that's what you'll see our World War II honoree page. You'll see the real Homefront Heroes, pictures of the my sources when they were kids, and you get to learn about the real people that the books are based on. It's a really The teachers have a lot of fun taking the kids to the website, and um, I'm trying to do as much as I can to engage young people in learning about and preserving our history. Well, that is terrific. Just terrific. We need more folks like you out there, Teresa, doing this kind of work. Thank you. Have you heard the figure, I just say the figure in air quotes, that by 2036, it's estimated that there will be no more World War II veteran alive on the planet. Have you heard that? I believe that. Yeah. I had not heard that number, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, assuming someone lives to be 106, 108, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's true. But uh, I think we've already turned the corner on a great number of people who are capable of telling their stories. And, you know, um, their cognitive issues, of course, and just physical right. you know, fragility involved with all that, that access, you know, in our own work here, um, uh, you know, just seeing veterans, World War II veterans, it, their inability to get out and about anymore is pretty significant and profound. I've been very lucky to spend 25 years getting to talk to some really amazing people and, you know, just been so inspired by the men and women that I have talked to over the years and heard so many stories. And, you know, even just sitting on an airplane, if somebody's wearing their World War II cap, I'm, I ask them questions and I've met some really, really interesting people. I know you have too. And, you know, I, I think that the work that we do is really important because once these people are gone, their stories are gone and you cannot get them back. And people come up to me all the time and say, gosh, I wish I had talked to my father or my mother. And it's too late. So, you know, what you're doing is really, really important. Anyone who's preserving oral histories, there's so much more value in it than, than people realize. Well, thank you very much. And back at you, and I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I am extremely fascinated by and appreciative of the work that you do to make this stuff resonate with the public. That, to me, that really, really matters because you could have you could have all the books in the world, you could have all these stories sitting on a shelf somewhere, but if no one is listening, no one is reading them, no one is taking them up, they are not heard. They are silent. That's true. Yeah. Which is a scary thought. 
I think that's what I've worked my whole career, and you've worked your whole career against. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, we're doubling down on our creative work, and um, I don't know what that means in terms of just you know the, the regular oral history stuff. Whether we will do less of it, more of it, I don't I don't know. But I do know that it's about engaging our audience, and to do that creatively, um, digital media in particular is a great platform for that. So I think that's that's really mm-hmm. in our our future in a big way. So I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I haven't done a podcast episode in forever, so. I'm getting my podcast hosting legs back here a little bit, so I appreciate your patience with me trying to walk through this, and uh, this is a fascinating discussion with you. Thank you so much. I really, I was very, very pleased when you asked me to be on the show, and, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network.